an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. We are the forgotten generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. Into the Vertical Blank. Generation Atari. Season 2. Episode 5. Electronic Games Magazine. Into the Vertical Blank. So, this is our episode about Electronic Games Magazine. Into the Vertical Blank. Season 2. Episode 5. Electronic Games Magazine. And I just want to get started by saying that Electronic Games Magazine to me, was the golden age of video games. The first issue came out in November 1981, and the last issue came out sometime in early 1985, but the issues that came out in 1985 were were burn-offs of articles that had been written by the staff before everyone was fired. The principal's Arnie Katz, Bill Kunkel, and Joyce Worley were all fired in late 1984, and the magazine then turned into Computer Entertainment, which lasted very few issues, and then that went out of business as well. They had the right idea that computers were taking over for video games, at least in the short term, but Nintendo actually showed up with the Nintendo Entertainment System in December of that year. And then video games took off again the next year or so. If they had just been able to stay around a little bit longer, they could have kept going. So Electronic Games Magazine, while it was around, basically chronicled the golden age of video games. And to me, as a kid, and Jeff as well, they became the de facto authorities on everything. And the approach to video games back then in the golden age, approach from magazines, was different than what came in the Nintendo age. It was a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more, not necessarily business-like, but the hobby of video games had not been established yet. And so they were busy sort of poking the edges of the balloon, attempting to figure out what the industry really meant. And in fact, Electronic Games itself, I believe, actually printed the first negative review of a video game ever. At least the first negative review that many, many people read. And this was for Pac-Man in the June 1982 issue for Atari VCS Pac-Man, which actually came out in May because they always dated one month earlier so that the magazine would live on the newsstand longer to fool people who didn't know any better. That happened with all magazines. That's not just electronic games. still happens today. They just want to keep, they want people to think that 
the magazine is the newest issue, even if it's been stale on the rack for a while. But anyway, they printed the first negative review, and that actually was interesting to me because I believe that that first negative review, and I have a whole story about that, which will come at some other time, but I believe that first negative review is what actually created the video game industry. The video game industry was not an entertainment industry before that. It was an appliance industry. It was part of the toy industry, kind of. Mattel and Coleco and other toy companies getting in on the act. It wasn't really an entertainment industry until that first negative review came out. And from then on, Katz, Kunkel, and Whirly became the voices of that first generation of video games. And their fortunes lived and died with it, unfortunately. But they were some of my favorite people. And so, what do you think about that, Jeff? Well, to me, Katz, Kunkel, and Whirly were the industry to us that's all that really existed except for electronic fun and then later antic and analog which were really the only magazines that we purchased all the time aside from compute when we started to get into programming the atari but at this time just having got a 2600 or actually this was before we got a 2600 this was the industry and it's firmly the vertical blank so then before we go on, let's get in here and let's hear the first story about the first time we read Electronic Games Magazine. Nineteen eighty one, Electronic Games Magazine. When did the vertical blank period start for me? I wonder this sometimes. The golden age of video games was not just about games, really, but about a cultural shift away from the pure physical into the digital world. For me, I think, it started in earnest at the grocery store. See, throughout the 70s and early 80s, our house existed on the kind of gender divide that had been commonplace for centuries. My dad worked full-time as a draftsman for an aerospace company, and my mom worked full-time as a housewife, with a part-time job as a teacher's aide. Nowhere was this more apparent than in our end-of-the-week ritual. In the late afternoon, my dad would arrive home from work with his weekly paycheck, cash, and ready for the weekend. He would lay the crisp $20 bills on his bed, one by one, dividing up what my mom would get for the house and what he would sock away for whatever it was that he was socking away money for that month. Be it a motocross bike, a Civil War memorabilia, metal detectors, or whatever. The most momentous portion of this ritual was the final act. My dad kept eight $1 bills separated from the rest. If we had earned it for that week, or rather not lost it, he would dole out these bills evenly as a weekly allowance for each of his four kids. With the house money firmly in place in her well-loved red pleather purse, my mom, my brother, and I would head out in our sea blue 1976 Dotson 710 station wagon with the primer left back end from the accident in 1978 and begin the weekly shopping sojourn to the lucky supermarket. Even though this had an air of the ordinary, my brother and I were always genuinely excited about the trip. The dollar bills burning holes in our OP Velcro Ripper Wallace would soon be put to good use. Mad Magazine, 8 Cent Shasta Cola, Domino's Plastic Army Men, Twinkies, Topps Trading Cards, or whatever other contraband we could afford. These things would get us through the weekend of broadcast TV and lament about the seeming impossibility of getting a Tar VCS for Christmas that year. On one particular Friday night in the autumn of 1981, after we helped our mom select stuff like individually wrapped cheese balls, peanut butter Captain Crunch, and Fresca, my brother and I snuck to the magazine rack to try the mad fold-in and see if the current issue was worth buying. On that night, in particular, before my eyes could reach the cover of Mad, they fixed on something totally unexpected. Sitting right next to the new issue of Games Magazine was a new magazine that I had never seen before, with the intriguing name Electronic Games and the subtitle Video Games Computer computer games, standalone games, arcades. I quickly grabbed the magazine and started paging through it, which is not my usual course of action. It was common knowledge then that browsing the magazine rack was a bit of a sordid endeavor usually save for homeless people or dudes trying to sneak a look at Playboy or Penthouse. However, the appearance of electronic games changed all the rules for me. I opened the magazine immediately to an advertisement for Activision Tennis. This seemingly innocuous event had a fairly huge impact on me at the time. The name Atari, synonymous with video games in my head for several years, now made room for Activision. 
Activision. I had no clue what the size of either company was, and it did not matter. In an instant, the size and scope of the virtual video game world expanded twofold. At the same time, the game Tennis looked amazing. Gone were the simple rectangles and squares on a flat screen to simulate sports in an Atari VCS game like in Pong or Video Olympics. Here was a game that fully realized 3D characters and a 3D tennis court. I scanned a few more random pages and my cognition of the virtual world of video games multiplied each time. Each advertisement made a strong and lasting impression on me. George Plimpton showing Major League Baseball for the Intellivision Intelligent Television from Mattel, the company located down the street from me in Hawthorne, California who created one of my first loves in my kid life, Hot Wheels. A pencil-drawn Godzilla advertising Crush, Crumble, and Chomp from a company with a name that implied massive scope, Epics. A game named Quest for the Rings for the Odyssey 2 that looked like a combination of a board game and a computer game with illustrations that reminded me of the Ralph Rakshi cartoon version of The Hobbit, a fantasy realm of unthinkable size and scope. It was almost too much to handle. I felt my breath get short, my heart quickening, and the overwhelming sense that I'd been missing something. Where had all this come from? Where was I? Like many other times to follow in my life, I felt suddenly out of touch. I played Atari at my friend Carrie's house years ago. I played it in Fedmart and Target. I played Asteroids, Missile Command, Space Invaders, Pac-Man at Castle Park, Safeway, and Straw Hat Pizza. I knew the Intellivision existed because my friend Eric had one. I knew you could play games and program on an Apple IIe because Eric had one of those too. I knew you could get an IBM PC to play games like Olympic Decathlon because my friend Wesley had one one of those. He also had a Fairchild Channel F with those weird pump-like controllers. I also knew Atari computers existed, and I knew I wanted one, and that Asteroids was coming out for the Atari VCS, and I needed to get a VCS for that Christmas. I thought I had a handle on the world of video games, but I was so wrong. A nearly 100-page magazine filled with news and reviews about video games was another thing entirely. It was overwhelming. I thought I was as up-to-date on my video game knowledge as any 11-year-old could possibly be in 1981. Yet here in my hands with evidence that I was totally out of touch. It was a feeling that followed me my entire life. I think author Kevin Savitz put it to words the best when he coined the phrase, terrible nerd. To me, it's a feeling that, even in the area of things that we are intensely geeky, still don't live up to our full potential. Whenever I think I have something totally covered, someone else comes around who proves to me that I'm merely a rank amateur. The arrival of Electronic Games Magazine proved this to me for the first time in my life, but it definitely would not be the last. Yes, video game knowledge was hard to come by in 1980. None of this appeared in the pages of Boys Life or AYSO Soccer Now, the only other magazines I read on a regular basis. I seem to recall an ad for video games in Games Magazine, but that was about it. Cognizant that paging through a magazine at Lucky Supermarket was a frowned upon activity, I closed it and took another look at the cover. Electronic Game. The name held so much promise. The word Games. When you're 11 years old, is there a better word in the English language? Electronic. The word seems so space-age and so advanced. For years, my brother and I tried to make our own games to fill the void of not having our own Atari VCS. We tried everything from makeshift games on an Etch-A-Sketch to making rudimentary pinball games from spare rubber bands and light bulbs and motors in the garage. But our actual ownership of electronics had been quite minimal, which made the title all the more alluring. We did have a few games that were electronic, I guess. Mattel handheld football, basketball, and baseball, but they were very limited in scope. Some blinking red LEDs, beeps, and colorful buttons, but most of the time played out in your mind as opposed to in your hands. Our only previous personal ownership scrape with actual video games came when my dad bought us a heavily discounted Tandy video scoreboard Pong unit for our previous birthday. But the less said about that, the better. There was no color, and the sound came out of the unit as opposed to the TV. Even in 1981, it felt ancient. We hid it under the TV when our friends came over. It also broke down after just a few uses, the video signal warping every time we tried to turn on the power. By contrast, nothing about Electronic Games magazine appeared this limited in scope, ancient, or broken in any way. It felt wide open and huge, like a kingdom of vast riches laid before us. At that historic moment, in the magazine section of Lucky Supermarket, next to the party favors and greeting cards, across from the vegetables all I cared about was the fact that I was holding the future in my very hands. I 
kept looking at the cover, thirsting for more and more. I knew that at any given moment, my mom would call us to leave the store, and we'd have to leave the magazine behind. There's no way such a practical woman, who had often eaten ketchup and salt soup as a little girl in the Great Depression, let us waste two ninety five on a magazine about video games. Just the thought of asking her seemed silly. However, when she finally called us to the checkout line, we arrived with a copy of Electronic Games in hand. Any thoughts of sneaking it through unseen were lost when she deftly asked me to show her what was clenched in the hand hidden behind my back. Her initial reaction to the magazine was mild horror mixed with disgust. The same reaction I had received in 1978 when I suggested I buy 10 packs of 10 cent Star Wars Blue Series 1 trading cards for my brother for his birthday. Surprisingly though, she gave in and I've always wondered why. Until the day she died, my mom never understood the appeal of video games or computers, so it certainly was not the subject matter of the magazine. Maybe she saw and understood how much it meant to us, or maybe it was something much more personal. Now that I've been a parent for 20 years, I'm aware of an obvious reality that doesn't show its face until it's too late for you to control. It's this. There is an inflection point in the life of a parent when they realize the diminishing value of trying to mold children in their own image. After you played your kids all your songs, had them watch all your movies, read them all the books you loved, introduced them to your religion, your values, and your take on the world, it's time to take a step back. You realize that pushing any further might just send them off the edge. So, for better or worse, you stop trying. I think for my mom that might have been one of these moments. She'd done her job. We weren't bad kids. We did okay in school, rarely got in trouble, and we didn't really complain about our station in life. We just loved video games, or at least the idea of them, and they were a thing that she never needed, never wanted, or never imagined would exist. But she could not hold us back any longer. So she relented. The magazine was allowed on the checkout conveyor belt, a moment burned into my mind that I will never forget. My brother and I split the cost of the magazine and took it home. We helped my mom bring the grocery bags in the house. Then we went to our room and dove in. I sat on the edge of my bed and my brother pushed over my shoulder so he could look as well. I turned past the first page ads, the table of contents, and fixed my eyes on these words in the editorial written by someone named Frank Laney Jr. It started like this. Did you know that you're a member of the world's fastest growing hobby group? No. As a matter of fact, I had no idea. In fact, I never felt part of anything before. Well, okay, soccer and baseball teams maybe, but they were short-lived. As soon as the season was over, so was the camaraderie. The one time we stood in line to see Darth Vader, Chewbacca, and the Stormtrooper parade through Toys R Us in September 1987, it felt a bit like camaraderie maybe, at least for a couple hours, but this seemed completely different. I continue to read. It's true. Although the first Pong machine made his debut only a decade ago, today more than 5 million Americans regularly play electronic games. The introduction of space-age electronic amusements amounts to nothing less than an entertainment revolution. A member of a revolution? I'd never thought it was possible. I watched other revolutions pass me by. TV shows kept telling me that the 60s was a counterculture revolution but I was born too late. The punk rock my sisters were so involved in appeared to be a revolution too, but I was too young for that as well. But electronic games to me truly was revolutionary. It was the first of its kind, a monthly publication dedicated to video games and other video game phenomena. The magazine started as a series of Arcade Alley columns in Video Magazine in 1980, written by Bill Kunkel and Arnie Katz, and championed by Bruce Apar, editor for Video Magazine. Katz and Kunkel were friends since the early 70s, turning their passion for pro wrestling into a radio show, and then one of the first pro wrestling magazines. When that failed to catch on, they wanted to try to make a living at something fun. The seed of that idea blossomed into Arcade Alley, the success of which proved to Reese Publications the publisher of Video Magazine, that a video game magazine might have a chance for success. Kunkel and Katz pitched the idea, and before the end of 1981, they had their first issue published. By 1982, Electronic Games became the authority on video games, and along with it, writers Arnie Katz, Bill Kunkel, and Joyce Worley became household names to video game fans in the USA. The basic design of Electronic Games Magazine, editorial, newsletters, previews, reviews, strategy section, was copied by every major video game publication that followed, and the structure can still be seen today in most video and computer game magazines.
1981, my brother and I just had that single magazine in hand, and we had no idea what the future held. We traded turns reading and looking over the other guy's shoulder for most of that weekend. Every page held a treasure trove of wonder and interest. The first image in the magazine that caught my attention was an Atari advertisement about three pages in. It showed a stack of brightly colored VCS game boxes about three feet high with the words Atari. There's no comparing it with any other video game. The stack of Atari games looked immense. I had played the Atari 2600 Carrie's house, but she only had nine games. I played at Fedmart in the TV section, but they had only combat on display. I never had any idea that there were so many games for the Atari 2600. So many, in fact, that the colored boxes could form a complete rainbow. I was blown away. Did all this stuff really exist? For me, in the pages of the first issue of Electronic Games, the hobby of video gaming was born. I mean, my brother and I were not complete virgins when it came to video games, but who knew the available information about them could fill an entire magazine? It was a whole world we'd been missing, and neither of us wanted to waste another second standing by its edge. We wanted to jump in feet first and never look back. We missed the new episodes of The Incredible Hulk and The Dukes of Hazard that night. Friday TV just could not hold a candle to our new discovery. To be honest, TV itself would never quite hold the same fascination ever again. Well, not static, boring, non-interactive broadcast channels anyway. We drank in the full-color pages, the reviews, the previews, and the articles and the advertisements of that first issue of Electronic Games. And it was at that point that the magazine became my Bible, a living document of the future held in my hands and read one page at a time. I returned to Electronic Games every month for the next three and a half years. In its pages, my childhood obsession was documented. The ups and downs of the industry, console releases, and new game reviews. In those pages, I learned about the Atari System X, the disappointment of ECS Pac-Man, and the wonder that was the Arcadia Supercharger. I read previews for the movie Tron, salivated over the ColecoVision, and was blown completely away by the GCE Vectrex. It was also in those pages that I read about the great video game Shakeout, saw Dragon's Lair, the Laserdisc game, for the first time and learn that home computers would be the next big thing. Then in early 1985, it all went away. The magazine stopped publishing. Atari was a shadow of its former self. Video games were heavily discounted and most disappeared from stores entirely. And I moved on. Just about the same time, my dad took my brother and I to see the movie The Breakfast Club. And I was suddenly thrust into a teenage world of rock and roll, girls, failing academics, terrible poetry, rebellion, and serious introspection, the likes of which I would not escape for a very long time. Recently, I purchased a lot of 10 electronic games issues from eBay. I have digital copies socked away on my PC, but for some reason, I had the urge to hold the magazine in my hands, turn the pages, and feel the glossy paper on my fingers once again. When I opened the package, the physicalness of the magazine shocked me. Turning the pages no longer feels like a simple romp through the past. In the 35 years since I've read an issue of electronic games, its importance has become the stuff of legend to me. In my head, it's been vaulted to a place of grand importance next to other glorified kid experiences like playing Atari, seeing Star Wars, and riding a skateboard for the first time. But reading the magazine now, the significance has shifted. I used to consider Electronic Games Magazine a landmark for the whole world, and in some ways I still do. However, the importance that shocked me, the one that hit me as I sat on our seldom-used family room couch, turning the pages of those ten magazines from eBay, that was much more personal. It became clear to me that I could only try so hard to explain and show the implications of the golden age age to the generations that followed. At some point, I have to look inward. If younger generations don't get it, does it still matter? Maybe. It matters to me anyway. As I turn each page, I'm reminded of the news, products, and people that have long since passed from history. Their meaning lost in an era that was buried figuratively by time and quite literally in Alamogordo, Texas. To me, those pages are now like the pages in a photo album. Their significance changing over time as I grow and change myself and alter my perception as the years pile on. In hindsight, it was such a short time. A blip in my life, really. Why was it so important? Why do I feel drawn back to the pages of Electronic Games magazine and two journalists like Arnie Katz, Bill Kunkel, and Joyce Worley, the ones who documented the era in real time. I can't explain it exactly, but I know this for sure. Electronic Games magazine does not just live in my vertical blank. It forms the entire damn foundation of my vertical blank. Sorry for not being eloquent or wordy, because I simply can't explain it any better than that.
Boys, boys, boys. Okay, nerd lingers, I'm back. Steve forgot to say that. Frank Laney Jr. was actually a pen name for Arnie Katz. Let's hope Jeff was more polished than Steve this time. I wonder if Jeff could get any of his little microphone widgets to work this time. You just press record, Jeff. Just. Press. Record. Wow, Steve, that was fantastic. It's exactly how I remember that time. Between the summer and Christmas, having that magazine for the first time, and it was proof to mom and dad that this wasn't really a fad. It had its own magazine, and we sort of were hoping that it would get us an Atari 2600. And it worked. Yeah, think about that. I mean, that was, to me, it really is the vertical blank. I mean, Electronic Games forms the vertical blank, to me anyway. I really feel that way. There's lots of other things, but really, I mean, the the nomenclature they created, the way the magazine was set up, the fact that they became Katz, Kunkel, and Worley, the editors and creators, became sort of our big brothers when it came, or sisters, or big whatever, our adult mentors into this world of video games that, like I said, before the magazine came out, and this magazine came out and basically it was it came out before we ever had a video game system. We'd wanted one for many, many years, but never got one. I think partially this magazine made it possible because our parents realized that it was a thing and not just something else and the fact that we were so into it. But I think that, that Cats Kunkel were, they basically created the video game industry as it is known today, like as it would become. And, and it was taken out of the hands of the manufacturers, taken out of the hands of, of the publishers, and into the hands of the game players, the arcaders and the joystickers, nomenclature from the day. And that's where it's been ever since. I mean, it's been up and down and sideways and left ways and no more than it is. If you just go look today, the players rule. Developers don't. In fact, in some cases, the developers are beholden to everything that the players want and do, which might not be a good thing, having a guide. I liked having people who knew what was happening in the industry drive it, at least tell us what was going on. I don't necessarily think it's a good thing that everybody has all information at all times now, at least until there's some context put on top of it. I like there being a context and not everyone just running and screaming when some piece of news comes out. So anyway, what do you think, Jeff? I liked the way it was back then when we could trust the magazine and we had these three trusted voices along with some of the other magazines, but these were the three trusted voices to you and I, where everything was put in context in that editorial and in those reviews, and we could really trust everything they said. Now, do I like it better then than today? Sure. Um... There was a limited amount of information. Today, there's, there's, it's a different, right? It's just different. There, everybody has a voice. You can go and get reviews. User reviews sometimes are higher than the the reviews from the reviewers because they're jaded or they get all the cheat codes. In my story that's coming up, it talks about how that magazine sort of completed our need to be inside that world of computers and video games along with the outdoorsy world of camping. And in fact, the manufacturer's magazine that I discuss wasn't enough for us. Right, right, right. Let's not get too into your next story. Let's listen to your story, which I think comes at a very interesting time. Right now. Electronic Games Camping. The long drive up the 395 in Dad's giant international pickup. One with the real crew cab and a full six-foot bed 
and all four doors was generally a pretty boring affair. Steve and I would usually have had an electronic games magazine to pass back and forth, but the August 1982 edition had not arrived in time for us to bring it on the six-hour trip from our house to the campgrounds on the outskirts of Yosemite National Park. Along the way, we'd stop for gas, a burger, and snacks a few times. But we were literally driving through the Mojave Desert, and none of the gas stations or little one-horse town all-in-one shops had a decent variety of magazines to choose from. So there wasn't a whole lot we could do to pick up a video game or computer magazine once we left the Los Angeles suburbs. We did have the relatively thin first issue of the Atari marketing magazine Atari Age with us and a couple Danny Dunn and the Scientific Method books to read. The Atari Age was only about 20 pages and it was passed back and forth a few times then dispatched for books after the first hour or so. While it was a fun, colorful magazine, it was not the cup of tea for us almost teenage gamers. It had an interview with Pac-Man in it. Do I need to say more? While Electronic Games Magazine was a tome of incredible information, reviews, and a deep look at an entire industry, Atari Age held its head high with some great insider content, but it wasn't a substitute for the Game Doctor and an awesome selection of what can only be considered the first Bible of video games. Dad pulled the car into the Levining campground and quickly found a paradise spot. It was at a really nice secluded giant space right on the creek with trees overhanging and a view of the pure pine and aspen forest beyond. This time our parents wanted to try something different for camping and it was probably the only reason our mom went with us. Dad agreed to rent a large trailer from June Lake and have it brought to the campsite. It wasn't the type of camping Dad usually liked, and in fact, I distinctly remember him sleeping at least one night during the week outside. But it was perfect for my mom, and Steve and I enjoyed it either way. Not all campsites are created equal, so when Dad found this beautiful spot, he quickly dropped a week's worth of cash payments into the campsite envelope drop and secured the site. But he and my mom still needed to go to June Lake about 30 miles south and coordinate the delivery of the camper trailer to the site. Steve and I were to stay at the campground to ensure no one else pulled into the spot. While we sat in our two folding chairs, root beers in hand, dressed in OP shorts, OP shirts, and two-toned van slip-on sneakers, we marveled at the beauty before us. Even though we were suburban kids, we loved camping and the outdoors. It was just that we loved Atari and video games just as much or more. We had had enough hikes and visits to on and off the map historical spots lined up to satisfy our need for adventure and probably barely whet the appetite for our dad. But being only six months or so into owning an Atari 2600 and already itching for an Atari computer meant that it occupied an inordinate amount of our time, especially our thinking time. Always thinking, planning, scheming, and the like for more games and craving all the information we could get our hands on was an obsession that even the excitement of fire, hot dogs, ice cold root beer, toasted marshmallows, bacon, and the John Muir Trail could not quell. Dad had received the catalog for the trailer company in the mail about four months before we left on the trip up north to the Lee Vining campgrounds. We had poured over that catalog with him in the same way we poured over our video game catalogs. Each trailer's layout was shown and described with accuracy as to beds, tables, closets, etc. Steve and I helped our dad pick out one that was both economical and would easily 
house the four of us for a week in a place with no running water and only pit toilets to satisfy nature's call. After a few hours, Mom and Dad returned, and the trailer soon followed. It looked a little beat up on the outside, not too bad though, and on the inside, while a little cramped, was genuinely a nice little place to put our feet up for the next few days. Steve and I kind of forgot about the Electronic Games magazine over the first few days of camping, as we had a steady diet of hiking, exploring, planning, eating food made over a fire pit, and watching stars until it was too dark, and we had to reside back into the trailer. These later night times with Steve and I up in the shared bunk, with just our books and just Atari age to entertain us, made us think about the Electronic Games magazine that was probably waiting for us at home right that minute. So when Dad said that he needed to go to Mammoth, a small ski town at the time, but the biggest town in the area, to get a fishing license and some bait, Steve and I jumped at the chance to go with him, stock up on some snacks, and take a look around at what was in the ski village. Today, Mammoth is a year-round resort with skiing, mountain biking, dirt biking, and any number of awesome outdoor pursuits. But back in 1982, it was mostly dead in the summer with only a small mall and a Vons open to the public. Dad let Steve and I go into the Vons to get some chips and soda, handing us a $20 bill while he went into something called the Bookie Joint to look into his fishing license and get a map of Old Mammoth an old mining town near the current village. A six-pack of tab, some ruffles, and a couple snickers only cost us about $7 of the 20. So we took a look around at the magazines in hope of finding the August 1982 of Electronic Games. It wasn't there. This Vons catered to a very different crowd than the lucky supermarket in our beach town suburb. Disappointed, we walked over to meet our dad at the bookie joint and entered a paradise like no other in this area of the state. The bookie joint, while having a lot of maps and the ability to get licenses for campfires and fishing, also had the single largest magazine stand we'd ever seen. This little ski village in the middle of nowhere had Atari computer-specific magazines like Antic and Analog, and even Compute, and other multi-format magazines. And nestled right next to the Games magazine was the most beautiful sight we had seen in all of the Sierras. It was a thick 100-page magazine with a black cover, adorned with a space cowboy riding a Robotron machine through the atmosphere. It was the August 1982 edition of Electronic Games Magazine, and we had cash left over from the snacks. Needless to say, we purchased the magazine and still had $10 left to give Dad a change. He was so interested in the mining books and maps and the old mammoth history that he never noticed us buying the magazine. Not that he really would have cared. He too, while not a video game fan, was starting to see why we might want an Atari computer. He had no use for the VCS. But the computer intrigued him, and he was not against us having a hobby that might someday lead us to leaving the house with real jobs. We waited patiently while Dad made his selections, and then tore into the magazine like mad when we got back into the truck, passing it back and forth and reading over each other's shoulders for the 40-mile drive back to camp. The inside cover was an Atari two-page spread with brightly colored boxes for all the current games. The video pinball cartridge was getting a lot of Steve's attention, while Outlaw was something that looked good to me and was something I thought my dad might be really interested in. The rest of the drive went something like this. Hey Steve, look at Games by Apollo. The ad is filled with colorful boxes and names like Space Cavern and Lockjaw. Hey Jeff, look at the Switch On section. Here's an article about, is this the gaming golden age? I'm not sure what that means, but it sure feels golden to me. Hey Steve, doesn't one of our friends have the Ballet Astrocade? Well, look at this Wizard of War game. 
It's got a full color screen in the end. None of the 2600 ads really show full color screenshots. Ooh, what's this? The game's hotline. A poll of all the games available. And the top game is Pac-Man. We didn't really like the Pac-Man cartridge we had, but Pac-Man was popular at the very top of the list for the first month it was eligible. Pac-Man was the leader. Everybody liked Pac-Man. No game had ever done that before. It dethroned asteroids. Oh, what's this? Said Steve. What's a Vectrex? The drive went on like that. Once I had the magazine just in my hands, I started looking through the top 10 of computer games. Atari computer games dominated the top 10 with Star Raiders, Jawbreaker, and Missile Command rounding out the top three. The Atari report said that Atari was licensing a game called Dig Dug from Namco and was going to release a home computer version of a game called Caverns of Mars, as well as Berserk and Defender for both the VCS and the Atari computers. Oh crap, Serious Software. They pretty much only made Apple II games. Blah. Vic 20, the king of low price micros. Blah. A few pages of test lab material on that system. It seems okay. I might get back to that section of the magazine sometime. Video disc machines? Huh. Hmm. Games on video discs? Joystick jury. Ooh, here's an article about what makes games great. I'd like to read that later. Tron. That's a cool movie. I was sick the whole time with pneumonia and didn't know it. The magazine's kind of bringing back the headaches I had. No thanks. What are arcade myths? This magazine's full of stuff. These are two Atari 800 games look great. By a company called Arcade Plus. A driving game, a football game, and it says a baseball game. They look way better than anything a television or Activision has for the 2600. Steve grabbed the magazine back for me and started telling me the programmable parade section. It started with a bunch of Odyssey content. No one we know had an Odyssey, but they look kind of cool. And then it got right back to VCS games with a game called Cosmic Swarm and Star Voyager. But what was that? Steve said. Steve pointed out a game, Demon Attack? That game looks great! And Snafu for the Intellivision. I wonder if the kid down the street has got that yet. There were some real screenshots with these games. They didn't look like the normal illustrated screenshots, probably because the games were starting to get better. Oh, Star Strike for the Intellivision. That looks awesome. Maybe there'll be an M Network version of that for the Atari VCS. We arrived back at camp and it was getting late. There are only two more days left here and then a five hour drive back home. Steve and I decided to each only read one half of the magazine. So when we got home, we'd have reason to look through the copy that assuredly would be sitting on the kitchen table, waiting for our return. The next few days were a blur of hiking, in which we have a photo of my mom that to this day looks like the original Bigfoot walking by a log pitcher from the mid-70s. She didn't look like Bigfoot, no. But whoever took the photo was not the best photojournalist in the family, that's for sure. At night and during the rest of the times around the fire, we take turns telling the other person a little bit about the parts of the magazine we're reading, but not the whole thing. Hey Jeff, new coin-ups. I wonder when these are going to get to Castle Park and Redondo Beach. Wow, I need to get back and try these. Zaxxon looks amazing. I've never seen that before. Hmm, another version of Pac-Man. This time, Miss Pac-Man. I'm terrible at Pac-Man. Oh, and what is Tootin' Common? That looks neat. More driving games and skiing games? I hope the Atari 800 can play some of these sometime. Boscodian? I've seen you play this game at the arcade, Steve. It's really cool. Pinball? I love pinball. I don't want to read about it now. This magazine sure covers everything. Oh, it's video pinball. Raster Blaster for the Apple II? We played that. Atari video pinball. That's the cartridge that kind of struck my eye in that Atari ad. Davis Midnight Magic and Bally Pin? I didn't know there were so many video game pitfalls to play. Ah, Strategy Guide for Defender. That's great. One of the biggest quarter eaters in the arcade. There's like seven buttons and even more ways to die. My game's last about 30 seconds. 
I'll need to keep this for later because if I'm gonna put another quarter in Defender, I'm really gonna need the strategy guide. Stampede always seemed like a weird game in the Activision catalog. It's not the kind of cowboy games that we like. It's certainly not something Dad would like. There's a big strategy section in here for it. But the game isn't like Clint Eastwood playing the man with no name. It doesn't really hold much interest, but I'll save it for later, Jeff. Jeff! More Bally Astrocade content, a strategy game called Galactic Invasion, and another game for the Atari Android called Crossfire. I can't wait to get an Atari computer. What's this? A glossary of games. Oh look, a really cool arcade in Mountain View, California. I wonder how close that is to Levining Creek Campground. By the time we broke camp, we had had our fill of hiking, pit toilets, and driving to ranger stations to fill up jugs of water. We'd visited Old Mammoth Road and the old mill used for silver and gold washing. We'd visited Bodie and Mono Lake and had followed a real shepherd with his flock of sheep up the river on a long hike to check out the pristine wilderness of the High Sierras. It was pretty much a triumph of a camping trip. There were some weird sounds in the night, but we had open campfires and s'mores, and it even looked like Mom enjoyed herself. Steve and I also had that tie back to our other world, the world of video games and computers, a promise it gave us for the future. We were just a couple suburban preteens on the cusp of the rest of our lives, firmly planting ourselves in the vertical blank, while keeping more than a toehold on the outside world, bridging the gap between nature and technology the only way we knew how, as members of Generation Atari. Oh, boy, there were a lot of things I could have looked up to fact-check this thing you created, Jeff. But I took the low road and actually typed Bigfoot into my search engine. Big. Foot. A new low, even for you. The picture of Bigfoot walking was actually a short film called the Patterson Jimlin film, shot in 1967, not sometime in the 70s. It does seem that you've learned some basic recording skills now. Oh, who am I kidding? I spent hours fixing that rubbish you recorded. <laughs> yes, yeah, those trips with mom and dad were, were interesting. I mean, it was with mom a little bit and then mostly with dad. Mom decided that she didn't want to spend her time on Wee's weird camping trips where dad was searching for his past one metal detector trip at a time searching for the past but i think it was searching for his as well but yeah that uh that's can't believe they just sort of left us to our own devices out there while they went for whatever in the middle of nowhere i mean i guess it's okay we just were like city slickers in the middle of this what amounted to a wilderness with nothing to read probably except for maybe another issue of electronic games or something i don't even know what we had with us but you're right you know we didn't have that much and we were <laughs> sitting out there. But yeah, that's indicative of many of those trips. Tell me more about what you think about that, Jeff. Yeah, as um, as they depicted in the story, we probably had an Atari age with us. We probably also brought a back issue or two of electronic games with us. But what I wanted to really get out of that was the emotion of need of new information and the fact that we found it in this place where it should have existed. That's pretty much what I was going for. The two worlds colliding. But yeah, I'm sure we had another issue of Electronic Games with us, but that didn't count. It was not the issue that had the space cowboy robot riding a Robotron machine and was a hundred page issue. Probably the largest one that ever came out. I don't know that for sure, but it could have been. So I don't want to leave Electronic Games here at all. We will have another episode just like we had the episode before this one, episode four, season two, episode four was 
about the 10 worst products from Electronic Games Magazine. Uh, that was supposed to be part of this episode, but we decided to release that one on its own because we were think- we're trying to figure out how YouTube could figure into our podcast. And in that case, they both coincided. So we released a very short podcast that was also a YouTube video. But I think what we're going to do in the future is the podcast will be the podcast and specific stories will have YouTube videos associated with them. So probably what will most likely happen is the two stories from this episode will have a YouTube version. And you'll be able to see some of the things that we're talking about. Because that's what kind of make it a little bit better to illustrate some of these things. I actually have a plan to go back and illustrate some of the stories from last season as well in the same way. It'll just take a little time, but I think it'll be fun to go and show some photos and images and stuff of some of those old stories. Some of them are hard. Some of them don't have a lot of photos to, to be associated with, like Claw Hammer, the first one. There's not a lot of photos of that time, but you can mix some stuff in and try to get some contextual stuff. I just don't want to rip anybody else's stuff off the internet. So if it's like magazine cuttings or catalog cuttings or advertisements or stuff like that, that's okay. But other people's photos and their work, I want to keep out of our YouTube videos. I want it to be things that we source ourselves. So that, that may make it take a little bit longer, but ultimately I think be a better product. So, hey, so again, Electronic Games Magazine, landmark for us. Now let's get into a little bit of watching, playing, reading for the week. What have you been uh, watching, Jeff? So I continue watching the Shaggy Dog programs on the History Channel. Um, Everywhere they try to find gold from Oak Island to the Philippines to now Civil War gold in um, Lake Michigan. And also, we have been watching all of the episodes of Game of Thrones, starting with season eight, and then going back and watching season one, because we never watched them before. It's kind of interesting to watch season eight and hear all the complaints people have about what's going on, and then go back and watch and not really have the same complaints, because don't have really that much invested in it uh but it's a really good show oh that's cool that's cool i mean i so i got one thing that i've been watching uh that i watched it was a movie called jack of all trades i actually bought it well rented it on amazon prime uh it's about the baseball card industry of the late 80s and early 90s uh, it's a documentary about a guy who supposedly finds some old cards in his mom's house and tries to figure out what they're worth, and he, he ends up you know, having this, uh, this life-changing experience. It's a little put on. I mean, it's, um, if you've ever seen Documentary Now on IFC, the documentary series, it's a little bit less believable than some of those. I mean, you know the ending. It's, it's actually, I think there's been a parody of this exact theme. And I saw another documentary last night called Laddie on Hulu, which is about Alan Ladd Jr., the guy who greenlit Star Wars for real. It's a great documentary, but thematically similar in the way that the documentarian, what they learn about themselves. It's cool. I've just seen so many of that turn on the documentary that it's a little off now. It's just a bit too much. But both interesting movies, both worth watching, although for Jack of All Trades, I'd wait till it was free, where you could watch it on Netflix or something else for free. It really wasn't worth the five bucks that I, I spent on it, but it was, it was interesting. I'll just tell you quickly, Jeff, what I'm playing. First of all, I've got some boxed Atari 8-bit games. I've got Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, and I got uh, Temple of Apshai, and a bunch of SSI games for 10 bucks from the local ret- retro store. Um, I just love the feel and the ephemera of all that stuff, so I'm, I'm on my quest for CIBs. I also got a CIB of combat, Gatefold of combat, and so it, it means that I only have two things left to complete my collection of the original gatefolds for the Atari VCS. I need the instructions for Street Racer, and I need a copy of Basic Math just like everybody else because it is super rare and expensive. But, okay, I just want to point out, I've been playing obsessively Dragon Quest Eleven on the PlayStation 4. How about you? Well, that's a lot of new uh, CIBs, Steve. In fact, I'm trying to collect mostly CIBs now, too, Unless I can find Star Wars, the arcade game for the 2600, most everything else I want are complete in box. Right now, I am actually playing 
three games, all for the old systems. One of them is a complete in-box star glider for the Atari ST. Then I also purchased Space Game and Mappy from the Atari Age Store. Those are both 2600 homebrews and incredibly fun. And what have you been reading, Jeff? I've been going back and taking a look at a lot of old antique and analog magazines, mostly to get an idea of what the games were from that period, from 82 to about 84, that we never had. And then I've been downloading the ROMs onto the Atari 800XL and I've been playing them. I'm planning to use some of that for part of an episode, probably a YouTube episode because then I could show gameplay. I also have been going through the Don Iman and Kurt Iman, the Atari Assembler book, which is a fantastic way to learn the very basics of full Atari assembly for the 6502 and the Atari stack, but not really graphics or anything like that, but really how to take the things you would do in basic and translate them to assembly. Okay, I just want to get into one thing about reading. I want to point out, I've been reading a couple, couple books, one book called Coders and some other stuff, and they're good. I would talk about them some other time, but I want to talk about Kevin Savitz. A couple weeks ago, he uploaded an old computer catalog to the Internet Archive, and Jeff, why don't you explain what that is? Um, Kevin uploaded the 1982-1983 Cybersoft catalog for Atari computers, and it turns out that this was a distributor catalog that was sent to all kinds of independent computer stores. And this was the exact same catalog that we picked up, but uh, from HW Computers in, I would say summer of 1981. So it was, an it was a couple issues before, but it had all these descriptions of these incredible games for the Atari 800 that we'd never heard of before. And we just paged through that catalog, looking over each other's shoulders, reading through all the descriptions, and it just made us want to get a, an Atari computer. And I thought that was lost forever. And it turns out that because Cybersoft was probably the distributor of the software and allowed the computer stores to put their own name on the catalog, that this is really a definitive version of the 1982-83 catalog, which of course is probably the two biggest years for Atari 800 software. So it's fantastic. It doesn't include every single manufacturer. Not all Atari cartridges are in there, but there's a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of great stuff. So that's the Cybersoft catalog and it's on the Internet Archive. Oh my God, it's awesome. I mean, if you think of it, just think about like, like what that meant to us, that catalog we had. We probably, you know, I want to say we probably had that with us when we were on the camping trip that you described. I mean, we had it definitely before my story when we went to see the electronic games for the first time. But that catalog was just amazing. Hey, by the way, what we forgot, there are a couple pieces of feedback we got. Jeff, why don't you describe them? Yeah, we got two good pieces of feedback from two blog sites, which is really cool to have blog sites out there again about Atari computers. The first was atariprojects.org and the author of Jason H. Moore, PhD, recommended one of the things you can do is listen to the Into the Vertical Blank podcast. And this site is fantastic. It's got all kinds of things to do with your computer. Everybody listening to this should go take a look at this site. The other was from a site that I just envy the template they're using. It's uh, the templates by another guy named Steve, not you, Steve. It's called Atari8bit.net, and he gave a fantastic review of our Season 2, Episode 1 about Food Fight. So... Keep on bringing the feedback, guys. Thank you very much. Okay, well, I wish we had time for more this week, but we kind of don't. So I'm going to sign off for now. And Jeff, uh, hopefully we will have a longer episode next time, but that's what we got. Thanks for listening to Into the Vertical Blank, Season 2, Episode 5. Yep. Thanks to everyone for coming on this journey into Generation Atari with Steve and I, Into the Vertical Blank. <laughs> Thanks. Say something. 
something. It's coming through. No, no. It's coming through. Um, let's just try it. Thanks. Say something. Say something. Say something. Say something. This is Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari Electronic Games Magazine. Electronic Games Magazine. 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 You should move close and also move closer to the mic, please. Move closer to the mic. I think your, your wait, just say your fart did make it into the is fixing the rubbish you recorded. Uh, I don't think that helped. Just press record. Now, why was it important, Steve? I think you're, you're. Wait, just. Now, why was it important, Steve? Now, why? Now, why? Now, 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 why was it important, Steve? Why is it? Why is it floating all over the place? I have no idea why it's floating all over the place. Is it? I mean, it's pointed right at you. It's not even pointed at me. Just press record. Into the vertical blank. Thank you for listening to Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari Season 2 Episode 5 Electronic Games Magazine Into the Vertical Blank Next frame calculated Prepare to write new data V-Blank ending An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production